Sage's Stories. Welcome to today's episode of Sage's Stories, the official podcast of Sage's, the Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons. Please make sure to hit the like button and subscribe so you can stay up to date with our most recent episode and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 20 of Sage's Stories, where we shine the light on some of Sage's most impactful leaders. I am your co-host, Dr. Kevin L. Hayek, tuning in from Cleveland, Ohio. And I am Dr. Sharin Tofai, loving life in Los Angeles after one day of pseudo tornado that never happened. Oh, I know you are. You always love in life though. So that's no, no surprise. So we, <laughs> we usually start each show off with a little banter, but I, I think if we spend too much time on that, we will lose out on the tremendous wisdom we are about to hear from our guest for episode 20. 100% agree. Plus, Kevin, I can't believe this is episode 20 already. Unbelievable. All right. Well, let's get the show on the road. Well said. So with that, we are very excited to have today's guest on the show, Dr. Steven Schweitzberg. Dr. Schweitzberg was born in Boston, but now he hails from Buffalo, New York, where he is the SUNY Distinguished Service Professor, Professor with Tenure and Chairman of the Department of Surgery, as well as University of Buffalo Professor of Biomedical Informatics at the School of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. His educational journey started at Johns Hopkins University, where he received his BA in 1977 in biology. Dr. Schweitzberg followed this up with an MD at Baylor College of Medicine in 1980 and tacked on an MA in medical science at Harvard Medical School in 2014. He completed his general surgery residency at Baylor-affiliated hospitals from 1981 to 1986, and fun fact, was a pediatric trauma fellow at the Pediatric Trauma Institute at the Floating Hospital for Children from 86 to 87. His subsequent career has been quite illustrious, and we will get into some of that during the show, but suffice to say that he has traveled the nation and served in multiple institutions, including Baylor, Tufts University, Harvard University, and now SUNY Buffalo. Like several of our guests, Dr. Schweitzberg also served our country in the Army as an Army Reserve Medical Corps major from 1986 to 2000, during which time he received multiple service medals, including the Army Commendation Medal and the Kuwait Liberation Medal. Thank you very much for your service. He is obviously extremely well known to all of us at SAGES due to his innumerable leadership roles on various committees, which he continues to serve even today. He was the president of the society from 2011 and 2012. That's also the year I met him at the Sages Fellows course in Sedona, Arizona. And I knew at that time that he was a very special leader. And I can't wait. And I know Sharon can't wait to hear a little about your story in your own words, uh, Steve. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, let's start maybe for the early years. Um, Steve, if you can just give us a brief story of your childhood and your family growing up. So although I was born in Boston, my, my father was a sock salesman, sold socks. And um, we moved to Maryland, which is where I, I really grew up and grew up in Montgomery County, Maryland, and, you know, sort of a typical middle-class existence of the of the 60s and, and late 50s. Uh, my mom didn't work till later. And, um, you know, my father had had graduated um, high school when he was 16 and um, snuck his way into college, and wanted to be an astronomer. And that somehow didn't work out. So he found himself in the army or the army air corps, which was the predecessor to the air force. And um, and it it shaped my sage's career later because I was fascinated by his stories of Japan. We'll talk about it later. We spent a lot of time building relationships between sages and and uh, Jasus. But he then went on to NYU, where uh, one of my sons just graduated with a with a degree in um, digital science and communication. And um, a along the way. Um, 
he met a guy in a bingo parlor named Steve Wynn. And Steve Wynn was a bingo caller in Wayson's Corner, Maryland, and when my father met him. Nope. And my this is the this is the Steve Quinn. Right? This is the Steve, Steve Wynn, Wynn, yes. And by that time, my father had moved on from socks to selling industrial chemicals, thousand gallons at a time, you know, really big time stuff. When you have a bingo hall, you have to buy a lot of floor stripper to keep the place clean. So my father and Steve became friends. We became family friends. I knew his mom and his brother and, and Steve and his wife pretty well. And um, eventually, Steve realized that my father was as good a marketeer as he was, turned the bingo over to my dad while he still sold chemicals, which made him enough money to buy an interest in his first casino. So that didn't work out as planned at the frontier, but he eventually got to the golden nugget where his legacy was really made. So when I was in college, yeah. um, we all had dinner one night. He, he said, I'd hire you and any of your friends in a heartbeat for the summer. So I took off for the golden nugget um, and um, got to spend a, a summer in the casino in Las Vegas. So it, it was, it was a lot of, a lot of fun. Um, and Sorry. I, what did you do with the golden nugget? I worked in the cage where all the money was, but oh, cage, yeah. also um, because, you know, I guess the statute of limitations is up. I was a little underage for a work permit. <laughs> but um, those those were not real. Those became not problems in, in, until later. Um, but I also it's didn't Vegas. know. It's, yeah, it's, it's Vegas. What goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas. Stays in but, Vegas. Now, now, yeah, now it's on Sages. So. Yeah, now it's, now it's on Sages. And I um, shilled a little poker at, at the Golden Nugget. But it was wow. it was great fun. My my dad was incredibly permissive. I um had fallen in love with the idea of flying airplanes. So I joined Civil Air Patrol as a cadet and um, worked my way through the Civil Air Patrol ranks and earned a flying scholarship and soloed when I was 16 and loved all things machines and airplanes and got a pilot's license. And and so with that sort of general you know, spirit, I, I uh, had originally wanted to go to the Air Force Academy, but it didn't work out. And or mostly because I couldn't see well enough. I had strabismus and didn't know it. Mm. And uh, found my way into Johns Hopkins sort of by kind of calling them at the last second, asking them if they had any more extra spaces. And um, in May of my senior year, went and met with the school and they said, yeah, we can, we can take one more. So I really don't know what it's like to apply to college because I didn't really apply the way you know kids apply today I just sort of stumbled my way in which is really sort of the hallmark of my whole life I just sort of get lucky and see opportunities and I loved Hopkins I was I think I was a year older than Mark Talamini we were there at the same uh -huh. time did you know um, each other no we, I think we ran no. into each other once or twice we really didn't yeah. know each other um very well but but Hopkins was great um because I was uh, uh, in this Civil Air Patrol thing, this was the early days of computing centers. Um, the guy who ran our little cadet squadron, Civil Air Patrol does search and rescue for those people who don't know, goes back to the 40s, spotted submarines, does a lot of great community work and, and search work. The guy who, who ran it ran a data center and they didn't have enough people to run computers. So he hired high school kids to taught them how to program, basically gave a whole, this is the seventies, mind you. So this, there's not all this computer IT, there's no internet. I mean, there's, you know, early scratchings of DARPAnet and things like that. And so I got an entire career in computing, running this data center, helping the team babysit. We formatted textbooks, the claim to fame for this company, which was called Autocomp, was it formatted the uh, yellow pages for Burbank, California which is a well-known spot in American television because it was the home of yeah. Laugh-In, you know. Uh, I mean, it's, a, really, it's the new Hollywood, yeah. Yeah, it's the, new, it's the new Hollywood. So I get to college with a computer background and start writing programs on <clears throat> PDP-11s, which are like the size of uh, your refrigerator. And um, really this accidental thing that I stumbled into, the computing, really set the tone for a big part of my medical career later although I didn't quite know it at the time, because this is, this is about journeys. 
you know, it's not about the destination. You know, you Mm -hmm. have no idea where, where you're going. So because I could program, I started doing database studies during residency, did a big emergency room study, um, actually convinced David Feliciano of trauma fame to buy a PC. And we, we did a study. I did an emergency room study and was just far enough ahead that it, it seemed like it was interesting to, to most people. My, um, my career is full of failures. Ton, so you, you, you skipped, uh, you skipped one, one thing about, um, you know, deciding on medicine. Was there something yeah. that kind of spurred you on to, to go to medicine and then maybe, maybe talk a little bit about that journey and, uh, the decision to, to go into surgery as well. I want to sure. see how Steve Wynn uh, made you become a doctor. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm trying to piece this together and see how being in the cage uh, and gambling and then flying an airplane leads to opening, you know, and closing people and doing things and, you know, fixing them and all the good stuff that we do. But, but certainly uh, seems a, seems a bit of a stretch when you hear the initial uh, journey. We'll see if we can, we can see, we'll see if we can tie it together. Okay. So, you know, I grew up in, in, in Maryland and this was the days when your family doctor literally lived down the street and their offices were in their homes. And it was a, a wonderful woman named Ann Dimitrov. She was the first woman to graduate from her medical school in the South. And, and she was a real role model and an idol to the family. She had moved to Las Vegas uh, about the time I was in college because her house got flooded and she and her husband picked up. So the summer I spent in Las Vegas, I spent some time with the Dimitrovs. And and she really talked a little bit about her life in medicine. And it kind of opened up my eyes to, to a number of things. I was, uh, I thought I was going to be a marine biologist, actually. And I was a scuba diver and I was working in a lab that spent time in Woods Hole. And it became clear even in the 70s that research dollars were drying up. So when you take all these sort of pieces of information together, you know, they said, well, if you go into medicine, you could still potentially do research. And so with with uh, Anne's influence and sort of the frustrations that are our, our lab at Hopkins, I went from not being a pre-med to becoming a pre-med, um, you know, late in my sophomore year. And I walked in, they had a pre-med office at Hopkins and I go, I think I want to be a pre-med. And they just sort of look at you funny because the last 10 people were dropping their pre-med uh, major. Hopkins was a pretty competitive place. Um, it was it was the land of uh, people destroying each other's organic chemistry experiments mm. to optimize their grades. Those are the the throats, short for cutthroats. And mm-hmm. uh, but I was a biology major. I was I was a I was a good science major. And um, they had a fascinating program at Hopkins called the two five program where you could go to college for two years. And, um, and then you would go to five years to medical school and they give you a college degree and a medical school degree on top of it. And so I had a lot of friends applying uh, to that program. And, um, and you had to take the MCAT as a, as a sophomore. So I was all well intended about taking the MCAT, but I stopped by some friends and they were having a party and my MCAT scores were never good enough as a sophomore to catapult me into the two five program. So, so that was another f- epic fail, <clears throat> but it worked out okay. And and part of my message for everybody is don't dwell on your failures because there are so many more things coming down the line. But the good part of it for me was they took all the high GPA rollers at Hopkins out of my way. And so I had, they were staying I, at Hopkins. They were all they staying, were staying at, at Hopkins. Exactly. Yeah. They're all staying. So, so it was me, me and one or two other people. It was like, we're kind of now at the top of the pile, but For I was elsewhere. Yeah. right. So I, I was determined not to be, um, you know, be humiliated by my friends. So I applied to the university of Maryland after three years and got in, but oh. I was a, I was a lacrosse fan and oh. I go, why do I really want to give up my senior year of high school to go on to medical school? So I did sort of what was unthinkable um, in 1976 was I said, can I defer my application? And they said, no. So I go, 
eh, I got in once I can get in again and what? turned down my medical school entrance to the only school that I applied to. Oh so I came back as a senior. And while I was looking at, you know, interviewing for real, I took the MCATs again for real, did fine. And um, I was at the gym because I was in much better shape than I am today. And there was a guy. We, we uh, all were. We all we were. We all, yeah, for sure. For sure. There, there was a guy pumping iron at the gym named Les Matthews. And Les Matthews was you know, doing bench presses. And he was a first uh, team All-American lacrosse goalie. And he's talking about Baylor College of Medicine, Baylor College of Medicine, Baylor this, Baylor that. And he's holding court. I'd never even heard of Baylor. But I'm taking notes because like everybody else there, we're in awe of Les Matthews. So I added it to my list, you know, in addition to all the East Coast schools, the West Coast schools I applied to, I applied to one school in Texas, which was Baylor. It was expensive then. Everything was on paper. There's nothing electronic. There's no Zoom. It was a $168 round trip ticket to Houston. Uh, I remember it to the penny and I fell in love with the place. So Baylor, Baylor was, was amazing but I was going to be a family practice doctor because Ann Dimitrov was a family practice doctor. Right. And during this whole decision-making of, you know, deferring a year and all that, were your parents aware of all this? My dad let me do whatever, whatever I thought was best. He was incredibly supportive. I'm terrified to let my kids drive, much less fly an airplane. You know, wow. to the idea that I would let any of my, I love all my children dearly, but the idea of letting any, any of them fly an airplane at the age of 16 by themselves and, and, and later on would be unthinkable. Uh, that's in, really remarkable. I have a 14 year old. I, I just can't even imagine because you would have had to start that process in your <laughs> earlier teens to get to Oh, that. yeah, for sure. Cause 12, I, you know, 13, you're already starting and because to have a license at 16 and flying is you, that was a years long process. Not I not wouldn't a, want to fly now. We used to joke there's two kinds of people in the world, pilots and non-pilots, sort of like there's <laughs> yeah. two kinds of people in the world, surgeons sure. and, and non-surgeons. Non yeah, yeah, we definitely. <clears throat> very, very, very Bayesian. And, but that was the civil air patrol uh, influence that you could go do anything that you set your, your mind to, including flying an airplane. The family practice was very popular. They gave po' boys. I didn't even know what a po' boy was when I got to Houston. I thought it was like some kind of potato thing. But it's, that's from uh, uh, from Louisiana, from exactly uh, New Orleans. Yeah, exactly. A lot of New Orleans influence uh -huh, in, uh -huh. in in Houston. Um, and Baylor Baylor was amazing because you could go to medical school in three in three years if you wanted to. So as an out-of-state student, it was mostly in-state students, 50 and, and 125, 50 out-of-staters. It would either be 12, uh, 4,000 a year for three years or 3,000 a year for four years. And it, but if you became an in-stater, it was 400 and 300. So I get to Baylor, I'm really loving it. And um, I don't have a lot of money, but uh, a few of us decided to be creative and again, the world was different. I used my state of Maryland student loan to buy a condo that made me a Texas resident that dropped my tuition uh, by 90%. Smart. And then even though I had been on the three-year track was doing, which was all basic science in one year, um, or, or the, I was gonna be, yeah, I was gonna be in the three-year track. And then I said, hey, I wanna change to the four-year track. And so I had overpaid my tuition. So I was done after one year paying um, tuition. So I uh, was gonna be an internist for sure. Uh, infectious disease doc in, in particular, hmm. was because I was, that, that was a, the peel of, of curing people. And I had amassed a lot of credits because I'd gone through basic science pretty early, did it in one year. About, I don't know, 20, 30% of the class did that. Pretty hard work. And I was happened to be walking through the school about a week or two after graduation, about three years into it. I ran into the dean and he said, well, what are you going to do? I said, you know, I think I'm going to graduate in three and a half years, which was also an option, and go be a club med doc for six months. That's awesome. He said to me. That's just the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I can't I can't imagine he would say that. I don't know why he would think that, that, that you know, foregoing half of a year to go be a club med doc would be wouldn't be 
something he would encourage every one of his graduates to at do. At a major academic. At a major academic. I can't imagine that. Exactly. That he, yeah, it's that's shocking. But I was a scuba diver. I've been to Club Med as my. So you did know. you do that? Did you really do that? Oh, no, no. He oh, talked okay. me out of it. He talked but I, I, I pointed at all the good times that I'd had at Club Med and I spoke oh. good enough French at the time and I was a scuba diver and I thought this would be grand. So I finally looked at him. I said, well, do you have a better idea? So he goes, well, funny, you should ask. They had taken over the years a couple of students that were going into surgery as infectious disease fellows. And I had made a commitment to, to do surgery, um, even though I thought I was going to be an internist to begin with. I learned very early, because um, I did medicine as my first rotation, that there are there are jerks and awful people in every specialty. You, you know, it is, I, I had today, I kid you not today, three students, I'm the clerkship director. The last three students I did, my mid-rotation feedback, they all, at the end of the feedback, this portion were like, we can't believe it. You know, in the, each individually, I can't believe it. I think I want to go into surgery. Uh, every, you know, and it was basically dispelling all the myths that they had heard. Yes. Is, and they were saying, is it too late? And it, it was fascinating. So I, I call, if they do eventually do it, I call those students converts, of course. And I keep track of them because it's it's been a fun thing to watch over the last four years being the, the clerkship director, just seeing these students like yourself who realize that, you know, surgery is not what, it's not what your medical school is telling you what, what it is, yeah. not what the media is telling you what it is. It's, it's a very different field than what you thought it was. And, and so that's, that's fascinating. So you, you would have been considered a convert then. I was, I, I was, wanted, a, I was also an internal medicine person that didn't even consider surgery until medical school later on. Um, same idea, you know, like, oh my God, surgeons are like nicer, smarter, more fun. But Kevin, did you go into medical school knowing you would be a surgeon? No, I didn't, but I, I, I was more open. I didn't know what I wanted to be. Uh, so I didn't want to be like, these are students who I thought I was going to do psychiatry. I thought I was going to do family medicine. I thought I was going to do internal medicine. And now like, I just don't know, like, what do I do now? Is it too late? You know, this, this was three in a row. I've never had that. It was, it yeah. was unbelievable. It's, it's, it's never too late. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I said. Yeah. I said, it's never too, never late. too late. You know, does the research that I did in bioethics, is that going to be discounted when I apply for something? Like, nope. Cause it's pretty relevant to surgery. There's no doubt. Yeah. You know, so everything is, everything is relevant to surgery. Yeah, and everything so is. after being completely disillusioned on medicine, my next rotation was surgery. And, you know, I trained in the old, you know, Baylor was the old Ben Taub at the time. Gunshot wound came in, resident cracked the guy's chest. And I just stand there in awe and go, I want to do that. <laughs> yeah. I, it was a transformative. Yeah, yeah. that's transformative. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, transformative, transformative moment yeah. for the rest of, yeah. of medical school. But I'm still planning on going to Club Med until I ran into the... <laughs> um, I'm sure you could get in. I, I'm sure with your CV... They would take you, Steve. I think you got a second second uh, option there for sure. I mean, but, I thought it was a glaring deficit in your CV that did yeah, not actually, the club yeah. <laughs> that was that was that was that was the dream. That was but the only deficit we saw in this this just gorgeous CV yeah. was There's time no in club med. med. So he he said you can be an infectious disease fellow, and I said, well, I have one more rotation that I want to do at Parkland in, in Dallas. And I said, well, Dr. Bradshaw, I said, I don't know if you noticed, but graduation was three weeks ago. And he just sort of looked at me. He was the coolest guy. I love Major Bradshaw. He says, these are not problems when you're the dean of students. He goes, when would you like to graduate? I said, well, right after I do Parkland. And he says, write me a letter. He said, tell me you want to graduate You know, on July 31st, 1980. So three years and a month after I started. I did see that in your CV. I did. I was like, man, he graduated in three years in medical school. I saw wow. it. I'm I'm not that good at math, but I'm I'm good enough to see that it that you graduate in three years, which uh, made me somewhat jealous. Uh, having just paid off my school loans last year, you know, for for the fourth year, so <laughs> saved a lot of money because I eventually sold that condo and did pretty well with it. But nice. so I was an infectious disease. So my degree from medical school is dated August first, nineteen eighty. 
And uh, I went to graduation twice, once at three and a half and, the, and again at four, because I could never figure out what class I was really in at that point. And did a year of- So I did the same thing, but it took four and five years. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's the same. It's the same. It's the same. <laughs> I didn't know either, but I couldn't know. I mean, a lot of people go to school for seven years. You know, it's the thing I heard. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was, it was great because this was at Methodist Hospital where DeBakey, Crawford, yeah. Noon, Powell, and the ID service serviced uh, Cooley and, oh, wow. and all of those guys. So I was the ID fellow. So like- the first month I was like the the intern. The second month I was like the resident, and then after that you're the fellow. And the ultimate the ultimate turn of the key was one of the mezzanine residents who had been mean to me, and I was now the fellow, and this guy was on ID. So you know, you should, the one of the take home lessons is you Don't should really be nice. Head. Yeah, be be nice. Yeah, be yeah. nice you to everyone. And and Baylor was pretty brutal at the time. Yeah. It was sixty two days in the house yeah. on call. And, mm. you know, I got to see, you know, what it was like working with DeBakey uh, close up, which is a, a pretty fascinating and terrifying experience. He was my was dad's still... idol. He was my yes. dad's idol. You know, was he still he... wearing the, the unique colored scrubs? Royal blue scrubs with MED on the diagonal. There's no, there's mm. no doubt about it. Mm. And, you know, today people go, why would you go to a program where you'd be on call for 62 days in a row in the house as an intern? And I go, it's just another mountain. And, um, you know, Baylor was really hard. I don't think we'll ever go back to time like that. But I did the DeBakey service as in my third and fourth months. And what you learn about taking care of the patients can't be repeated in any form of training today. Mm -hmm. I'm not defending it. Don't get me wrong. But it, looking back, I would never do it twice. Not sure I'd do it again. <laughs> but it was an extraordinary experience in, in an era in surgery where residents ran the hospital and autonomy, you know, running the Bentab ER, being a chief resident, you know, you don't, most graduates don't get this kind of experience for their, till they're five years out in practice. You know, many of the Baylor residents yeah. graduated with 2,700, 800 cases. Oh. And that's probably, you know, not even including all the cardiac stuff you scrubbed into. <clears throat> but I had, um, I was a black sheep in two ways there. Um, well, three ways, actually. Uh, one was I didn't want to be a heart surgeon. I found that out. As soon as I saw an angioplasty, I go, no, no heart surgery for me. Um, second, I wanted to be a pediatric surgeon in a place where they had no fellowship. Hmm. And, and third, in my third year, I thought maybe the endoscope would be a cool thing. So I went to the program director and said, hey, I'd like to learn how to do endoscopy. And he, really great person named Charlie McCollum said, if you want to do that, you'll have to ask Dr. DeBakey. So <clears throat> the idea of even speaking to Dr. DeBakey as a resident is a pretty frightening thing. Yeah. But um, I screwed up all my courage, went, made an appointment, walked in, he's at his desk, he looks up, there's no words. I was on his service for two months. It's not like hi, why don't you take a day? You know, it's like you're expected 100% performance from, from day one. And um, he looks up, I said, uh, Dr. DeBakey, my name, like, I didn't even know if he knew my name. You know, I says, I think learning how to do endoscopy would be really important. I'd like to do an endoscopy rotation. He looked at me, put his head back down to his writing. And I go, okay, I guess I'll be going. <laughs> Oh, awesome. And then the next day I got a phone call from the chief of GI saying, Dr. DeBakey calls said I'm supposed to teach how to do endoscopy in 1983. Wow. So I had a great experience at, you know, at the VA. I also got uh, to rotate with the colorectal surgeons one day a week and learn how to do proctoscopy uh, in, at Houston Methodist. This, the service was led by a fellow named Don Butts, who is still around. So thank you, Don. And um did bleeders and scopes, you know, in the, in the 80s. There were a couple of general surgeons who were thinking that the endoscope was important. And um, <clears throat> graduate, I didn't get into pediatric surgery. Um, my first marriage was a casualty of every other night call and 38 on and 10 off. And bad time to be applying for one of the most competitive fellowship topics in the world with only 14 or 15 programs a year. But it led to 
other opportunities, which turned out to be amazing. I tried one more time, went to Boston to do the uh, Kiwanis Pediatric Trauma Fellowship. And um, there I met, you know, great people and developed a technique of doing, using microwaves to warm blood. And um, after not getting into pediatric surgery a second time, uh, the chairman of the department, a wonderful person named Dick Cleveland said, why don't you stay on the faculty and work on your microwave research? So that's how I got started at Tufts. And um, again, you know, I didn't apply to college. Uh, I guess I did apply to, I, went, I guess I applied to residency, but didn't apply for a, a job until I got to Buffalo. <laughs> it was the first time in my life I ever really applied for a job. Um, and uh, developed microwave blood warming. 1986, 1987, took my first uh, faculty job while I could do my research at the prison hospital. So I think I, uh, one of the I, one of the fascinating talks. I had no idea, you know, the, of, of your um, involvement in blood, but was your American College of Surgeons address on on blood. I mean, it was like out of out of nowhere. I didn't know where it came from, but then I, I went. I went with my father, and it was. Uh, just a fascinating talk about the history of blood donation and uh, I think it was called the good, the bad and the ugly about giving blood. I, I, it was pretty close. And, and, and you know what, if you can remember that, then I am honored that you and your dad were there and I am thrilled that it made some kind of impression. Uh, uh, oh yeah. It was, it was fantastic. Yeah. I'll, I'll, if we have time, I'll tell you what it takes to, to put on that kind of uh, that kind of talk. And um, so it's the, it's the late eighties. I'm a trained trauma person. I've done a critical care fellowship. The board of surgery is opening up critical care as a specialty. I took the boards, but I was a niche general surgeon and, you know, really, you know, I had done thoracic surgery at Baylor and vascular surgery at Baylor. Boston was already specializing. And every time I would do like a chest case or a, a vascular case at, at the Shattuck Hospital in Boston, I'd be in the chairman's office and he'd go, well, thoracic surgeons do decortications and vascular surgeons do splenorenal shunts. And so I, I was a little flippant at the time. I said, is there a particular side of hernias that I would be allowed to uh, start on? And he goes, that's not funny and threw me out of, threw me out of his office. But he was, he was, he was amazing. And um, at that time, because you know, I did a couple of years at the prison hospital and then I got moved up to downtown, I wanted to do endoscopy. And I was shut out of endoscopy unless I belonged to an endoscopic society. So that was the, the GI people. And my, one of my partners said, you know, there's this new thing called SAGES. Join SAGES and say, that's your endoscopic society. So I joined SAGES as an endoscopist. Um, Lap Coley hadn't been invented. I had SAGE's membership. Surgeons had to scope in the OR, not in the uh, GI suite. And um, and even though I was still doing critical care, I wanted to use the endoscope where wherever I I could. I was, you know, at a time in my life where I was rebuilding my life. So I joined the army uh, reserves and found myself in Honduras and other places, ultimately in the Middle East, as um, as the uh, chief of surgery of the 365th Evac Hospital, and uh, it was a good experience. Things that I had learned in the prison hospital, I'd been the being the chief of surgery of the prison hospital is no. It looks good on your CV. It's it's like being the cool. captain of the head. Club Med would have been more impressive to us, but uh, yeah. that's still pretty. <laughs> yeah, Club Med would have been a lot more, a lot more fun. But it, there are interesting experiences you can have every in, everywhere. Yeah, you meet a slice of life. Right. I've been. How many people yeah. can say they've been in every prison in Massachusetts? Because I have literally yeah. been in, wow. in every every prison in Massachusetts. Uh, the Army was an amazing experience. I went with great people. Um, there was no bringing a laparoscope to the war zone. You know, we, we, this new lap Coley thing was just starting to, uh, heat up and, you're, um, you're a wet hand surgeon as one might say in exactly. In yeah. Oh, for, for, for sure. And so I, I get back, you know, I, I had a fiance, you know, it took a number of years and she was going off to Chicago to do, um, gynecology. And so I, 
called the chair back and he was amazing. He was so nice to me. So nice to my partner. So nice to my now wife. Um, and he said, listen, you know, I know it's important, you know, go find yourself a job in Chicago, but before you take it, come and talk to me. So this person changed my life. So I call him up and I said, listen, I found a trauma job at, um, at um, Loyola in, in Maywood, in Illinois. And he says, listen, let me make you the counteroffer. There's, you know, we need to reboot our laparoscopy program. And you're kind of a device person and a computer guy. And I think that's what the world's going to be. Oh, interesting. Why don't you be in charge of laparoscopy? So I talked to my, you know, fiance at the time. He says, we'll make a spot for her as a second year. You got to honor your match contract. They had a new GYN chair. So she came back to Boston where her, where she grew up in, in Wayland. So it was, that was good. And I became in charge of laparoscopy, never having wow. done. I had never done only, one. Were you the only one in trauma that did that? Because trauma was late into the endoscopic, laparoscopic world. There wasn't anybody in trauma interested in the laparoscope. I called David Feliciano and I said, listen, David, you know, Maywood, uh, Loyola, this laparoscopy thing. And, and David yeah. was, is if you've never, if you've met him, he's, he's amazing. And he said, listen, yeah, yeah. if you can get an elective surgery gig, I'd take it because guess what? <laughs> Doing another stab wound at three o'clock in the morning. And, and he was probably like 45 oh, at the time. And I was like 35. He goes, if you can get an elective surgery gig, you ought to really consider it hard. Boy. So I said yes. And the chair had uh, met a guy who was in private practice who was a couple hundred lap coolies ahead of everybody else. He came every Wednesday. We did a mini fellowship for a year learning how to do lap coley. And, and from there, I bootstrapped the rest of the department and we went to Appy and to colon and to spleen and to stomach and to perforated and to, it was, <clears throat> it was like the most amazing thing. Cause we had to figure everything out. There are no fellowships. I mean, there's nothing you are, you are yeah. literally going, all right, I think I want to start doing spleens. If I can get the short gastrics down, that would be great. And, and the community in Boston was small. There was David Ratner at the General. There was David Brooks um, at the Brigham, you know, but, but not very many people. Yeah, I mean, and although we won't have a chance to, to chronicle the entire academic journey over 40 years, which uh, suffice it to say, again, not good at math, but uh, I think the publication number is, is close to 400, if not over. Which is flat out remarkable for for non medical listeners as someone who also tries to publish while having a busy practice and subsequently in your case uh, four kids myself three and you know I can assure you that one publication is a well over fifty to a hundred hours of additional work um, but I think also you know you clearly devoted yourself to surgical academics but I think it's a bit simplistic to peg you only as an academic surgeon and a huge part of your, you know, outside of quote unquote, the clinical aspect of surgery has been involved in innovation. And we're going to, we're, we've been specifically charged by the executive team to talk a little bit about the innovation, uh, you know, project, which we'll hit on a little bit later, but just maybe tell us a little bit about how you merged academics and innovation. And there's always this piece of, uh, you know, questionable, conflict of interest that I think is always fascinating to hear about as well. And I've always been very interested in, in your journey in that regard. Yeah. So, I want to know if your innovation, is that just because that's just you or is, were you also involved with in, in an environment where it promoted that? Well, when I got to Tufts, you know, I, I, I went to the lab and it was a pretty busy lab and the director of the lab said, Hey, there's a company that wants to test out a new clip applier. They need a general surgeon. Are you interested? So the first thing I ever tested was a clip applier by Richard Wolf, and it was a non-starter. Um, and and right there, I said, you know, we need people to develop these devices. And so people would come to to Boston, and they were looking for places. We had an animal laboratory. We had cadavers. They were looking for places to do this, and I found the work really, really, really interesting. So I was primed and ready to go when laparoscopy hit. 
I had a lab, I had people, we had techs, I had experience. And as a result, we worked with Ethicon, US Surgical, Boston Scientific. You know, there were no courses. Tufts was a very, you know, international uh, group. I put on my first course in uh, Saudi Arabia because the training was very uneven. Well, yeah, so we yeah. we put we put together a course. Um, there's no animal labs there. Um, we did, you know, we trained so many surgeons in the operating room. We we put on courses. We did it again in Greece. We did it again in in Egypt, because it, it you know it's not like it is today. But it's it's a geometric thing, Kevin, because then after the big companies came, the startups came. And then you realize that there's whole other world of people that don't have millions of dollars that are interested in fun and engaging people. And I can tell you, I guess I've been part of a dozen startups. Most of them are not worth the paper that they, that they engage you with. But if you have one or two, you know, listen, never make enough money to, to retire but I've met the greatest people who are insane problem solvers and, and you realize you can, you can solve things. And I, and I took that sort of startup mentality into sages, you know, when I finally said my society will be sages. So I went to the college, went to the sages table. They used to have a table at the college, ran into a young woman and said, I want to join a committee. She said, that's great. What's your name? Write it down. Nothing happened. Come back next year. Same young woman. I want to be on a committee. She goes, that's great. We'll call you. I go, that's what you said last year. And she was horrified. Oh, she goes, I'm so sorry. She goes, mm-hmm. she goes, what committee do you want to be on? And I go, well, I don't know. What do you got? I just want to participate. So my part of the message is you can't hit the home run unless you swing the bat. Yeah. So she's going through a list and she goes, technology. I go, that's what I want to do. Ah. That was Sally Matthews oh. long before was she was. Sally I was going to say, why Matthews. isn't Sally following through? Yeah. <laughs> this was Sally Matthews before she was Sally Matthews. Uh. So I go to the technology committee and there's uh. like six people there. I don't know if you can imagine. That's the extent of the tech committee. And and wow. Rick was talking, Rick Satava, who's a genius yeah. of mine, yeah. Yeah. talking yeah. about the future in 25 years. And Joe Peatland was the committee chair. Mm. There, a guy named Bill Traverso was the vice president just sort yeah. of sitting in. And I said, you know, Rick, 25 years is great, but I think our surgeons need to know what's happening in the next three or five years. Yeah, And, and maybe that's what we should be doing. I got a letter from Sages like a couple months later saying, congratulations, you're now the tech committee chair. So <laughs> it's like, okay, what are we going to do now? So this was right when endo suites were new. I convinced Stryker to bring an entire endo suite to the Sages meeting. Yes. You know, we had voice recognition wow. and yeah. telephone. Sydney. Sydney, and we had yeah. telephone connectivity. And um, and we were off and running. We created the technology pavilion, the tech reviews. And, and I think it really came from that sort of golden nugget and civil air patrol. And yeah. you know, yeah. I can go live on Debakey service. The yeah. only reason not to do something is if you can't figure out how to do it. And, and Sages not was be afraid. Sages became known as like the tech. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you want to go to a meeting where you can have a lot of toys you can play with, that was Sages. So that's what we started doing. We brought yeah. the toys and and yeah. so many great people. Dan Heron had been a fellow in my lab. He became a partner in crime. And Whoa. Pat Reardon, who had been an intern with me at Baylor. Mm. Uh, you know, Mark Talamini, who was, you know, emerging as, you know, the, the, the robot God, I mean, just so many, so many great people. And we just came up the, the, the newer and the weirder it was, the more we thought it would be a good idea. We were throwing as much spaghetti on the wall as we could, because not everything works. We had this thing called the tech pavilion. I killed it after two years. It wasn't great, but that's Mm -hmm. the thing. If you're afraid to fail, you'll never do new things. If you're not afraid to fail, then who knows what you, what you can do? And and so, um, but then you had the the portions of the meeting that were actually tech, non CME, right? Tech uh, like presentations. I love so, those. So so we Shark so we started that in Shark Tank. So it and started. Shark Tank is great. It started when David Ratner was the program chair, and I went to David. I said, David. Um, 
I want to put on a course called Surgeon in the Digital Age. And he goes, well, what would that be? I said, I want to teach people how to edit video because I was trying to push this idea of videos into surgical endoscopy. Yeah, I could see the intersection between bandwidth, computers coming down in price and software becoming affordable. And he goes, I don't know, man. I said, this is really out there on the edge. I go, it'll be great. So we put on a big course. We had, instead of Pig Lab, we had a lab doing editing in Premiere, another lab in another room editing in Photoshop, another lab editing in advanced Microsoft Office, which in retrospect seems kind of hokey, but the other <laughs> two were pretty good. These became some of the highest rated courses of their day. I took that uh, video editing course. It was super great. fun. Super, yeah, fun. super fun. IPEG invited me to do it, but then we were kind of opened up. And right then and there, folks like Rick, who had been the president, said, Sages is not on the cutting edge anymore. And Mark and Dan and Pat and Sally and I were on the phone. And I go, that's ridiculous. We're on the cutting edge. So I said, we should have an emerging technology. Bring your conflicts. Bring it all. And somebody said, well, you can't give CME. And I go, I don't think people come to the Sages meeting just for CME. It's so we did that door to door, wall to wall, people standing at the at that. And so. and so we did, you know, Lynx was presented for the first time uh, at that meeting. A lot of yeah. great stuff, a lot of stuff that was interesting and went nowhere. But the but the learning lesson from that is people come to the Sages meeting to see what is new and and what is interesting. And so we did that. We coupled the surgeon in the digital age with voice recognition classes and how to fix your endoscope, you know, tower classes and all of those kinds of things. <clears throat> and then the the evolution of all of this as as the world changed was how are we going to support a society in the future? Because if we keep on doing what we're doing, we're going to keep on getting what we're getting. And I'd long after, you know, I'd already been president. I had a great super time as the chair of FLS for five years, you know, really thought that was an amazing gift from the society to let me do that. And, and as I ponder the impact of say the foundation, we're so grateful we have a foundation, but like a lot of things, it wasn't a given when the idea first came up and neither was FLS. We were a million into dollars into FLS and the mm. discussions at the board at the time were, should we kill it? Mm. We ultimately, we were the leaders in outcomes. Bill Traverso had led us to outcomes, but it, but we, you know, we wound up killing that and letting Nisquip and the, and the college run that. And I've sort of, you know, pondered this, we have to change our model. So we started thinking about, I hate fake. I hate all things fake. So when Brian Duncan had seen, I had given a TED talk a few years earlier. He said, I want to do something TED-like. And I go, Brian, no TED-like. We're going to do TED. So I had some friends yeah, TEDx, in the yeah. TED organization at TEDx. And I convinced them to let TEDx Beacon Street in Boston, the biggest TEDx group, it's not TEDx Boston now, uh, partner with Sages. We convinced Ted that never lets a group do their own Ted thing to let us do it because we're always looking about solutions. Surgery, surgery is about finding solutions. If you want to find the best problem solvers in the world, just go find the surgeons. Because if you just take that and take it into your life, you can solve just about anything. So I said to the to uh, John Werner, who who runs it, I go, well, what if we make it free for the city? Would the TED group let us do this? I mean, this is really oh, I out didn't know that part. on the thing. So we had nearly 3,000 people there when we did TED event in Boston. And part yeah. of the way we were able to- I was to wondering why all the people were like, this is an amazing session. It's all Sages people? <laughs> so it was a lot of Sages people. But the way we were able to convince Ted to take a flyer with us because we opened it up to the city. Because once you get all the speakers there and you're paying for the venue and all of that, it's not that much more. Well, it's just so amazing. There's so many um, fantastic parts of the Sages services and meeting, the innovations tech uh, sessions, which I go to every year. 
Shark Tank, the TEDx, which I hope you you revive. Um, these are all really unique parts of Sage's meeting that no other meeting has. But it's but we try to be authentic. And you're behind it. Well, I'm behind some of it, and, and a lot of great people, Brian and Ratner and Lee Swanstrom and 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 Dan and Pat, just so many wonderful, wonderful, wonderful uh, people. Press Shaw, I mean, just all these great minds. So I'd gone to some meeting and they had Shark Tank, and you know, they, they presented and I go, I hate fake. Let's do it for real. And they go, what do you mean? Do it for real. Let's make a prize. And they so, go, and so that, that's where we started. And, and that I think is a great segue to, to, I think you know, exec definitely wanted us to, to make you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the new, new initiative, not so new, but, um, what you might call this the main inv- main event. So if you're a surgeon, innovator, entrepreneur, investor, inventor, this is kind of your cue to listen up. Um, so first of all, we want to hear a little bit about Sage's Ingenuity and Sync. So first of all, what are they? So s- starting with the Shark Tank, where we where it was uh, um, Horacio Osborne said, well, if we give them money, we should own a part of that. And I go, hmm, we don't do our own AV because we're amateurs. So the Sage's Ingenuity actually started out of Shark Tank discussions. And I was looking for some judges to help judge Shark Tank because now we got, we, we took one research grant's worth of money basically. And I stumbled into a venture capital firm. I started telling them what we were doing. And it was uh, Very Adventures in, in Buffalo. And they said, Yes, we'd love to help you with Shark Tank, but you've got 6,000 members. Um, you have this amazing base of smart people with great ideas who, you know, most of them, of you know, would would really love the opportunity to be able to be a part of, of innovation. And as we worked our way through all the complexities of, of how to do this, Shark Tank is a Sages event. It's a prize. It's not an investment by the society. But then that led to the discussions, you know, working with Chris Schlachter, who's been a big part of this journey. We go, we should form a for-profit subsidiary of Sages. And we should partner with experts because we are amateurs and we don't know anything about writing paper for investments and ownership and, 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 and diligence, even though I've done, you know, a ton of work for the VCs and doing consults and looking at, at, at innovation. And then the, the, the complexity of conflict of interest, why would a VC want to partner with the surgical society? What's the opportunity? What stage investment? And because of Sages is such a collaborative society and you know, part of the innovation journey has included the notes journey and you get to meet these, um, these amazing people, yeah. particularly Mike Coachman and I did the notes trial for uh, notes, notes, Coley, I floated the idea past Mike, and he thought this is amazing too. So the AGA is a parallel process to Sage's ingenuity, and we worked our way. Chris led the 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 uh, discussions at the exec, where Sage's would form a for-profit subsidiary. Now, if you think we're selling out, look at the world around you. The year that I was started researching this, the AMA paid $3 million in taxes as public record from their for-profit subsidiary of the AMA. The AGA already had a for-profit subsidiary when I had even talked about Mike about forming their version of, of, of an investment platform for gastroenterologists. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's, it's not neither good nor bad. It's, there are certain things that belong out of the nonprofit society that can be managed in a, in a different, in a different vehicle. And so we, one- we'll, we'll make sure we link, by the way, we'll also link these two opportunities in the show notes, uh, as well as your, uh, we, we didn't get to touch on, but your, your presidential address, which I think is quite prescient given that it's 11 years ago. And I think a lot of things you predicted back then are, are, have come to fruition, but, um, just so I think it's very intriguing. I looked at it as someone who's trying to also diversify my portfolio a little bit. After Evan just got his MBA. Steve. Getting my MBA. That? I, I, that's I think a, that's an awesome thing. Yeah, I think it's a really uh, 
it's an interesting thing. I think I would encourage all of our sages, entrepreneur, you know, innovator, inventors to to take a look because it looks like there's opportunities from both sides, both to to invest, but also to to pitch. And Steve, and I, you have multiple you have multiple uh, patents, a lot of intellectual property as well. For sure, and it's part of the 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 journey of the education. Part of my goal with this is to make venture investing accessible to surgeons of all ages. Yeah. So, yeah. so much discussion with Chris and Varia and the board. If you are a physician investor and go to AGLMD, they want a lot more money. Or somebody comes to you for, you know, they want you to invest in a device. Maybe it's a friend, relative, neighbor. They want a quarter of a million dollars. One of the things that appealed to me about Varia is the democratization of venture investing. And so the the entry is 10K. And that's an insanely low bar. People have invested more, but to say to somebody, even it, even if you're 35 and just getting, you know, past some of your loans, you can have your cash, your stocks, your bonds, your house. You should have something that's speculative. And it really teach people what this is worth. Now we're once again just out there on the edge. Yeah. You know, we have raised our first like $850,000 and are Congrats. making investments. For people who go, could I lose all my money? The answer is yes, <laughs> which which is why, oh, and that's true yeah. in the stock market yeah. too. But one this of the is another that's... golden nugget uh, uh, reference. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can lose it all. And, yeah. But... You walk into if, a casino, you could lose it all. Yeah. If only but that a... Steve knew how much this Steve was influenced by. <laughs> exactly. You, you have to take some risk, but you should never, I'm a Naseeb Taleb fan as well. You know, no black swan investments. You never spend more money than you could afford to yeah. comfortably lose. But I would, I would like, I'd like everybody to think about the book, The Power Law which really illustrates how venture investing works. You can only lose your money one time, but you could triple and quadruple your money, you know, multiple times. And so as we go into this new idea, there are potholes. Anybody who starts a project who thinks that it's just going to be, I have a great idea. It's going to be perfect. They don't know anything about potholes. I have stepped in to so many potholes, but the fun. Potholes are good. Potholes are good. Our first version of, of Sage's Ingenuity and, and the sync fund was we're going to invest in companies. So you would invest in a company. Well, that turns out to be a bad idea because number one, you don't have the time to do the diligence and you yes. become an owner. And as the ACGME was evolving, the, you know, the ACCME, sorry, the ACCME was evolving, having individual company investments was the wrong idea. So we pivoted because that's what we do even in the operating room when plan a doesn't work we pivot and we built the fund now we are isolated from individual investments for our sages members if you're a friend of sages and you just know somebody at sages and want to be part of the fund you can be a part of a fund too the aga fund is members only i believe so we pivoted to the fund and for some of us who have had you know, I've been on the podium enough. So as the chair of the investment committee, as somebody who helps pick the horses in the race, I am now not going up on the podium in a CME talk again. Mm. I, okay. I think part of our mission at Sages is to give more people opportunities. Mm -hmm. I, I'm so grateful to Sages. It's been part of my life. It's been part of my, my wife's life, my kid's life. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thrilled to watch other people go on the podium. I can give non-CME talks or talk in other places. But so on that note, Steve, because the hour goes by really quickly. Oh my God, yes. We have our favorite part. You know, you've been in, involved in so many aspects of Sages, but we always ask our guests this question. It's part of our We Are the Sages segment. And that is... We are the Sages. Sing it, everybody. Is what is your favorite Sage's story or most memorable Sage's story? Um, 
family show. Well, is it a family? It is a family show. Yeah. Well, it can this be up a- to PG thirteen. Though some of our wow. some of your predecessors um, have <laughs> stretched it. <laughs> have stretched the rating uh, somewhat. But uh... I I have been so blessed to be honored by the society to give me the opportunity to lead, be creative, fall flat on my face. People have have jumped on the journeys. It's a matter of faith, whether it was, you know, Sage's stories or Shark Tank um, or the or the Digital Edge. Um, I, I think the first sing off is probably my my favorite, one of my most favorite moments at Sages when the Japanese came out and sang We Are the Sages for the first time. Yes. It was so when was that? Oh God. It's I know. Shout out for 9-11, wasn't it? Editor's it, note. 1998 it was right around that time mm. um mm. and wow. you know and and the japanese had been coming to sages and droves you know i i was the the program chair and the chair of the program committee for a while and you know manabu yamamoto came up to me and said sages and jesus ought to get together so i said we should have an exchange trip so it's like my, my staff says, you just think stuff up for other people to do, but I do a lot of the work. <laughs> my my, st- my staff doesn't believe that, but I do a, a lot of the work. And so we really worked hard to build relationships. And Natan Zendel said, you know, what about South America? So the year I was the program chair, I I wanted to do this new thing called the internet and do the parts of the meeting over, over the internet. It had never been done before at Sages. So they said, well, you need to find Natan Zendel. And he delivered 13 sites in Latin America. So when I think about those favorite moments, they're all about the, the amazing people that I've had the pleasure of meeting from, from all over the world. But the most poignant of all was the first We Are the Sages. Mm, yeah. um, it was such a bonding moment. It made me realize that there was no other group that I belonged to that comes anywhere close to the family, the personal, the bonding experience, the college is great. The ASA is great. You know, some of these other things are great, but they're, they're not in any way, shape or form as personal and as moving as the sages experience can be. If you're willing to just raise your hand and say, yes, I'll participate. I'll do that. I'll volunteer because it's the threefold rule. But for me, it's like a hundredfold rule. Anything I've put in has been rewarded more than a hundred times over by the by the opportunity that I've had. And and and, oh, and I'm I am so grateful. Well, I, I can't believe the hour is up. It felt like five minutes just listening. And I know that we could we could dive into so many other topics. Um, we may have to have a part B with you <laughs> at some point. Um, it was fascinating to hear your story to learn some new fun facts that I'm sure others will, will also appreciate. Um, we will put show note links, as I said, to your presidential address, which I re-listened to recently. And um, as well as I think these investment opportunities, I, which I think are very interesting for future technology. And of course we hope to see you soon or, or at the very least at the Sages 2024 meeting from April 17th to 20th in none other than the beautiful city of Cleveland, Ohio, which is like a sister city in many respects to Buffalo. We, we sort of uh, suffer the same uh, sports uh, pain and uh, <laughs> uh, lake effect snow, uh, maybe not not quite as bad as you do, but- uh, Three hours door to door. Yeah, three hours door to door. So it's uh, really uh, not far. Well, I am grateful for the invitation I, you know, we're looking forward to Shark Tank in the spring. Of course, Sages NBT, which is all part of this innovation movement, uh, working with Eric Wilson and so many other really super bright people. Uh, NBT will be the semifinals of Shark Tank. And for anybody that has questions, they should just email me. I'm not hard to find. And be happy to talk to you personally about any of this kind of stuff. And you have to have a pretty, you know, you really have to understand the conflict of interest pretty well to do some of this and i think we do a pretty good job amazing this was awesome thank you so much thank you guys so much and that wraps up today's episode of sage's stories 
You can view the show notes for any links to sites we referenced today. Visit sages.org for membership information and for the most recent news from our society. Follow us on Twitter at sages underscore updates. Make sure you hit the like button and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. See you again next time. And remember, you can't spell minimally invasive surgery without sages.